We're going to dig right into the sermon this morning. We want to make sure we leave enough time for communion later on. We've been walking through a topical sermon series on the cross changes everything and the way that the cross of Jesus Christ literally has changed everything in our lives and in our world and for all eternity. As I was thinking about this idea of the gift of the cross, I I thought about buying my wife's engagement ring way back when. (laughs) And I remember going in, and and if you've ever bought a diamond ring, you you know, you, you learn the four C's right away. Does anybody know what the four C's are? Cut, clarity, color, and carrot. That was the one I couldn't remember. Carrot. And yeah, cost. They don't. No, no, no. No, the stores don't teach you that one. You have to ask. You can't afford it. I remember, you know, I kind of understood. They went through the charts. They had really nice pictures and stuff. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. I get it. I get it. I get it. But then I looked at a diamond. And I think they probably showed me, like, the worst one first. I think that's kind of a thing, you know. Well, you could get this, and it's like a piece of mud that's been polished or something. <laughs> and, and that costs, like, your, your life's fortune. Or if you really love her, you would get her this diamond. But I remember holding up the diamond and just looking at it in the light. And the way the light catches, all those little cuts in it, all the different facets of the diamond that are put in there by people that know a lot more about this stuff than me. And, and it just takes that, that light source and it refracts it into all these multiple beautiful colors. Today, that's what I want to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to hold it up and I want us to look at it and see the different refractions of the grace of God and the beauty of our salvation through the gift of the cross of Jesus Christ. We started this series looking at why should we focus on the cross. It's easy in the world today to say, let's skip over that. I mean, that's ugly and gross. We should just talk about love and how we should love everybody and how we should treat everybody really well. And yes, that's good. But if we don't focus on the cross first and understand why the cross is necessary and why it's so important, everything else will be wrong from that point on. So we talked about the need to focus on the cross. Then we spent a week kind of sitting in the classroom of the cross. What do we learn about ourselves? We learn that we're sinners destined for punishment. We learn that God is gracious that he gave his son in our place. And then the following week, last week, we spent the whole sermon on that topic, that he took our place. Christ died in our place on the cross. It was our cross, our death, our punishment, and he took it for us. Cross is not a symbol of love. It's not just a statement of grace. He took the punishment in our place. And so today I want to talk about what what do we mean when we say the gift of the cross? What exactly is the gift of the cross? And as we come to that topic, we need to first understand that the cross is, in fact, a gift. So we're going to look at three different kind of settings or scenes about how we can better understand the gift of the cross. But before we get there, I want to make sure we understand that the cross is indeed a gift. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see that there? The gift. 
The gift, salvation in scripture is a gift. It is a free gift, and we need to be careful to qualify that, free to us, incredibly costly to God. It cost the life of his son and the suffering on the cross so that he can offer it. But now to us, it is a gift. He earned it. He purchased it. He did everything necessary. And it is given to us, offered to us as a gift. Hebrews 2, uh, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, has this wonderful phrase. There's so much more going on here. But he says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? I love that phrase. So great a salvation. The gift of the cross is ultimately salvation. Everything we're talking about this morning is a facet or a component of the salvation that is this gift. And we must accept this gift through faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast found a statement by John Stott that just really sums up and helps us to understand what faith is. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that lays hold of him, the mouth that drinks the water of life. Faith does not create any of that stuff. Faith does not create salvation. Faith does not create God. Faith does not create the cross. Faith is the acceptance of those things from God. It is the declaration that God is true and that he is good and he has given us these things. Stott goes on to say, faith's only function is to receive what grace freely offers. Faith's only function is to receive what grace freely offers. So as we hold up this gift of the cross, this diamond of what Jesus did for us on the cross, I want us to look at it and be in awe of this gift that is being offered to us. Sometimes as a pastor, I think, what's the outcome of the sermon? What do I want people to do? What do I want you to do more in your life or or during the week? What, What discipline or practice do I want you to work on? This is it for this sermon. I want you to be more amazed at the gift of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. Because I think that if we would live with a greater amazement at the gift of the cross of Jesus Christ, that would then inform and transform the rest of our lives. And we'll look at that in future weeks. But today I want us to just behold the beauty of the multifaceted gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. So we're going to do this by looking at three pictures. The Bible uses several different pictures or illustrations to help us understand what Christ did for us on the cross. We're going to look at just three of them this morning. We're going to look at the marketplace. We're going to look at the courtroom. And we're going to end by looking at a family gathering. Let's start in the marketplace. Now, this is not like a Wegmans or a Walmart where you just go in and you find what you need. This would be in their time period, you would walk into town and somewhere near the center of town would be a very open area with all these different stalls set up. And you might find one stall where the farmer is selling his crops. You might find another stall where someone that makes or weaves cotton or clothing, they're putting things together and they have clothing to sell to you, different things that you need. And you're walking around and we would come across a another stall in the marketplace. And there the thing that would be sold 
would be human beings. Slaves bought and sold in the marketplace of a Roman city. You know, about a quarter of the population in the Roman Empire, sometimes as much of a third, depending on where you were, were slaves. People whose entire life was defined by being sold for a price, and now their lives didn't belong to themselves, they belonged to somebody else. These came from people that were captured in war at times, cities, empires that had been overthrown by the Roman Empire and their inhabitants. Sometimes would be set free, others would be put into slavery. Some were sold into slavery to pay off debts. Sometimes they sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt that they owed. Sometimes they were captured by slave traders or pirates. And some of them were just children that were born into slavery. And it defined the rest of their lives as a slave. Now, in certain instances, there was actually an idea that, that the slave could be paid a wage by the owner. I don't know if this was universal across the board, but at least in some cases, they were paid a wage. And sometimes that slave could save up enough money to purchase their freedom, to be redeemed, to buy back their life. That's where the word redemption and redeemed comes from. It comes from the slave market to purchase your life back from slavery. And this language is used in scripture of our salvation. We were bought at a price, the price paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. We are redeemed or sometimes ransomed. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, uses this language, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. It's a very similar idea, a payment a payment for us that we might be set free. Now, why? Why use this language of slavery? Why use the concept of purchasing someone back? It's because we need to be set free. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. And look at this phrase, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, it's talking about salvation in Christ, but we can take this too to say, apart from Christ, what is our situation? We are enslaved to sin. We are the people in the marketplace on sale. We are the people that are trapped in the slavery to our own sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are completely enslaved to sin apart from Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. We'd like to think, okay, but, but Pastor Dave, I, I've been a pretty good person. I've done good things. Surely I can set myself free from sin. I mean, even in the Roman Empire, they had this concept of the slave could use what he earned if he saved it up to purchase his own freedom back. And reading that and understanding that concept has helped me to understand Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. See, we are enslaved to sin. 
And we are being paid a wage by our master, sin. And that wage that we are earning is nothing that we can use to pay back and set ourselves free. The wage we are earning is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift that God gives is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at how Christ did this, Colossians 1, 13 to 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ walked into the marketplace of this world and he saw you and he saw me stuck, trapped, enslaved. And he said, I will pay the price for them. So what was that price? Did did Christ just come and, you know, create a few cows and say, okay, I'll I'll pay these cows? Did did he come and just say, well, I'm just going to pay love. I'm just going to show love and that will change people. First Peter chapter one, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the price that was paid. A lamb without blemish or defect. What are you worth to God? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. He did that for you. He paid the price. There's this beautiful scene in Revelation chapter 5. In 5 verse 2, a scroll is brought out and John is seeing this picture and he's writing it out. And I think sometimes he's kind of struggling for words. Like, how do I describe this? It's so amazing. But, but he writes this picture. And in the scene that he sees in heaven, he sees a scroll that is being brought out. And, and that scroll kind of contains God's plan for all of creation and how it's all going to end up. And people cry out, who is worthy? Who could possibly open this thing up and read it? None of us are worthy to do that. And in verse 5, John hears this proclamation that one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And John's like, yes, this is it. That's all messianic language. The promised Messiah, the king of the Jewish people, the one who would come, this lion of the tribe of Judah. This is amazing. He's going to be so amazing. And I love this in the book of Revelation because John has this thing where he says, I heard this and then I turned and I saw this. So he hears this proclamation and he turns and he sees what? One looking like a lamb or a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And then a song starts. And it swells from the crowd in heaven that is gathered there. And the people sing this song in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You, they're talking about Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you you see your salvation there? Do you see that beautiful light? You were enslaved. You were trapped. And Jesus Christ paid the price to purchase you back to be his child. We will, 
And I think Revelation is pointing at this. We will spend eternity marveling at the multicolored, faceted, beautiful picture that is our salvation through Jesus Christ and overflowing in worship to him constantly. We live in a world that values freedom. We live in a country that values freedom. We believe in freedom from an oppressive government. We believe in freedom of speech. We believe in the freedom to express ourselves. And and that's transitioned over to this self-identity. I can identify myself however we want. Freedom is is just overemphasized in our world today. And I think part of it is because we are so desperate to convince ourselves we are free when the blunt truth is we are not free. We're stuck. We're trapped. We are enslaved to sin. And we're a bunch of shackled sinners being led through the marketplace of this world, being put on display so that sin and Satan can point at us and say, see, they're stuck and they're trapped. And what do we do? We take our shackles and we get a bunch of paint and we paint pretty little pictures on the shackles. And we change the colors and we make them look different. And we think, now they look different. I feel more free because I've changed the color of my shackles. But it's done nothing to actually set us free. We use different words and different phrases to define freedom, thinking that will make us free. But we're still stuck in sin. Do you want to feel worth? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you want to experience freedom? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Some of our deepest needs as human beings and as a modern society, we need to understand are truly pointing us to the cross of Jesus Christ. To be saved is to be redeemed. The full price of our sin paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's leave the marketplace though. Let's leave the beauty of that picture of salvation being redeemed, set free, purchased. And let's go into the courtroom. In a courtroom, we see a criminal on trial. Now, make no mistake, this is not a courtroom where they're trying to figure out whether or not the criminal is guilty. No, we're past that point. The criminal is guilty. That's been proven. And they're sitting there waiting for judgment And the judge will make a pronouncement whether or not that person is going to be let go or condemned. This language of the courtroom is all over scripture. Words like guilt and punishment, condemnation, or the opposites of forgiveness or justification. These are crucial words in scripture that point us to the scene of the courtroom. And in the scene of the courtroom, we are the ones on trial We are the ones who are guilty. And God is our judge. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul lays out a court case against humanity. He starts in chapter 1 and he kind of deals with those that don't know God, those that weren't God's people, and he goes point by point through their culture and he says, you've walked away, you've betrayed God, you are his enemies, you are all lost. And of course, during Paul's day, the Jewish people would have sort of, yeah, you show them, Paul, those people, those, those other people. And Paul's like, I'm not done with you yet. 
And then he goes to the Jewish nation, God's holy people who had the Old Testament, who had God's law, who knew God. And he goes point by point and he says, you say you know God, but you're not actually following him and you're not actually obedient. And he comes to a verdict in verse 10 of chapter 3, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteous is a big word. It's bigger than what we can possibly go into this morning, but I want us to understand one facet of it is courtroom language. We use the word innocent. You're either guilty or you're innocent. You either did the bad thing or you didn't do it. They have that concept too, but they would include righteous. See, righteousness is being in right relationship with somebody or something. So you would be declared either guilty or righteous. The law says this, you either broke the law or you are living in right relationship with the law. God says this, you either defied God or you were living in right relationship with God and are righteous. And so that legal language comes into scripture. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 says this, consequently just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Do you see the courtroom language all over these verses? Condemnation for all people. We are all in the courtroom and we are all guilty. But one righteous act resulted in justification. One. Oh, pastor, tell us that one act. What is it we should do to overcome our condemnation to get out of that courtroom alive? There's nothing we can do. Romans chapter 3, 23 to 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's the courtroom language. Justified, declared righteous, declared innocent, not guilty. How? Why? Because of what Christ did on the cross. And he ties together that slave language with the courtroom language. He purchased you back. He paid the price for your crime. Therefore, you can be declared not guilty, righteous. Romans 5 verse 9 explains exactly how this took place since we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from Christ or God's wrath through him? Justified by his blood. There's the point to the cross. God doesn't justify us by laying out a 10-step plan to improve our lives and then grading us on whether or not we did a good job. That's not how it works. It can literally not work that way because there's nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous. But Christ came and died on the cross. One commentator points out, and this is so crucial, God's not looking at our sin and saying, I know you're a sinner, but I'm just going to forget about it. I'm just going to overlook it. I'm just going to do away with your sin as if it never existed. That's like we use this word amnesty. I'm just going to give it up and act as like it's not there. That's not what God did. He took our guilt, our sin, our punishment, and he didn't just do away with it. He put it on his son, Jesus. And Jesus paid the price. 
He did it so that we don't have to. It is ultimately an act of justice. The sin has been punished. The price has been paid. The guilt has been transferred from one person to another and the guilty have been punished. But in this case, Christ took our place. And here's the gift. Because righteousness is not just, now I'm no longer guilty or I'm no longer guilty of doing something wrong. He says in Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, Jesus Christ, having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not having a right, I knew there was something wrong in there. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Faith in Christ's cross. So here we are in the courtroom, and we deserve to be condemned. We know going in, if we understand and we trust what Scripture says, we know going into the courtroom, we are not coming out of there alive. We are condemned. And yet instead, the judge declares us righteous, justified, because our penalty has been taken by Jesus Christ. Our culture has found so many different ways to seek to overcome guilt and shame. One of the ways we've done that is to try to do away with the words guilt and shame. You should never feel guilt. You should never be ashamed. You should be stronger than that. You should speak good things to yourself and feel good about yourself. This is the message we hear all the time. It's not really your fault. Just embrace who you are and the fact that it makes you happy to express who you are. But I think underneath all of this veneer of trying to make ourselves feel better, we all struggle with a very difficult question, which is, what's wrong with me? Does anybody else feel this way? In the quietness of our moments, we're thinking, what is wrong with me? Is everybody as screwed up as I am? Because I feel like I'm alone sometimes. What's wrong with me? And telling ourselves, well, don't feel guilty. Don't feel ashamed. Just change it. Just express yourself. It doesn't work. We have a culture that has run away from anxiety, tried to do what makes them happy, and we've become more anxious than ever before. It doesn't work. Why? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But don't stop there because the answer is in the next verse. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Justification in the courtroom of God. The penalty for our sins put on his son, Jesus Christ. So that God declares us not guilty righteous in right relationship with himself. And Romans 8, 1 comes out and says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You ever felt like, what if somebody really knew what I was thinking? What if somebody really knew what I said or what I did? People really knew the real me. How would they treat me? You know what? God knows the real you perfectly better than you know yourself. And if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you can be absolutely certain what he thinks about you. It's right here. There is therefore now no 
condemnation. None. Oh God, if you only knew, and God's saying, I know. It's already been paid for. I've already declared you not guilty and you are righteous. We keep so much condemnation on ourselves. I think because we fail to understand what Jesus Christ has truly done for us. Justification also means that we can live in this right relationship with God now that there's no condemnation, but we can look forward to there is a day of judgment coming and we know in advance how it's going to go because of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 32 to 34 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Man, so many people live with this idea that, oh, I'm just, I'm scared of death. I'm I'm scared of judgment. I just don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm good enough. You're not. I don't know if I've done enough. You haven't. But in Christ, we can answer that question. What's going to happen when I stand before my creator? The answer of the cross of Jesus Christ and the gift that is given to us is that the answer is you will be judged righteous. Not by anything you've done, but through the cross of Jesus Christ. Justification, being right with God is a gift of the cross of Jesus Christ. So we've walked through the marketplace. Took a step in the courtroom. Now I want us to walk into a family gathering. That intimate, personal space. And I want you to picture a family gathering around a table for a meal or maybe playing a board game or putting together a puzzle. Maybe it's over a holiday. It's just this beautiful, idyllic scene. We see them on TV. Hallmark Channel loves to show them all the time. And we watch and we think, man, that's what I want. I want to be part of that group. I want to be part of that family where everybody just sits down and they just love each other unconditionally, no matter what. That's what I want. But so often we feel like we're the ones standing on the outside, just peering through the window going, I wish I was in there with you. But I feel so much like I'm out here and I'm stuck. I think we all struggle with this feeling of being separated, outside, not included, not accepted. Let's go a step further. Have you ever had one of those, please don't raise your hand if this is true. Have you ever had one of those family gatherings where you show up and that other family member is there? You know the other one. You maybe had that drop, drop down, just drag out argument with them at last year's Thanksgiving dinner. And you're mad at them and they're mad at you. Or maybe it's someone that has just hurt you so deeply. Or maybe somebody you hurt. And you're wondering, what's it going to be like when I show up? What are they going to say to me? Are they just going to walk away? Are they going to ignore me? Are they going to scream and yell at me? And there's this awkwardness and this tension in the gathering. Sort of a palpable sense of separation and rejection. You all know something is wrong. And you wonder if anybody's going to say anything. 
Scripture uses that exact language. And a key word the Scripture uses to describe our salvation is reconciliation. Having a relationship restored. Having the chair being pulled back from the family dinner table and the family saying, come on, come join us. Having God, our heavenly father, be the one that pulls the chair back saying, come, come be a part of my family. I want you here with me. We need reconciliation because there's this barrier That tension is real. That sense of separation and alienation is a real thing. We can't ignore it between us and God. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God paints this picture, and I love this. He uses the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. And the physical structure of this tabernacle and temple reminded the people constantly, God is with you, you are his people, and he loves you, and he's right there with you. But you are separated from him by your sin. It was a constant reminder. As they traveled through the wilderness, the tabernacle was set up, and around the tabernacle was called the fence. It was basically a giant curtain set up on poles. To keep the people out, you had to come in through the gate. Couldn't just waltz into the tabernacle and, and worship God. You had to come through the gate. And when you came into the courtyard, the, the tabernacle proper, the building itself, which in this case was a tent, was over there, and there was a door. And nobody could go in there except the priests. And in order to get from walking outside into the tabernacle, you had to go by the altar. And then the priests would go in and they'd minister on a daily basis right there in the tabernacle, what was called the holy place, the outer room. But all the time they're doing that, there's another giant curtain. And on the other side of that curtain was the presence of God, the most holy place. Constant Reminder of a separation between God and his people. A barrier, an alienation. We live in this alienation and separation from God. It affects our identity and our understanding of ourselves. It affects our human relationships as we are alienated from one another as well. But the cross, in its beautiful gift, brings reconciliation. First between us and God. 2 Corinthians 5.18-21, to Paul writes, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All this is from God who reconciled. Let's get grammatical for a second here. What's the tense of reconciled? One day he will reconcile us. He is currently reconciling us, present tense. Or is it past tense, something that's been done? I know this is super exciting. It's past. We have been reconciled to God. Do you remember the words of Jesus on the cross right before he died? It is what? Finished. We have been reconciled to God. Why? What was the barrier? What was the problem between us and God that we don't want to talk about and we don't want to look at? It's our sin. What did Jesus do 
on the cross. Verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made us righteous through what Christ did on the cross. We are reconciled to God. You know that feeling we go, I just, I don't know if God likes me. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. I feel like there's this problem between me and God. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 22 uses this tabernacle temple language. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. All of that is language of the priest being prepared to go into the tabernacle. And all of it's applied to us in saying, this is what Christ did for you. How many of us look at our relationship with God and we say, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if God really loves me. I think he loves that person over there because they're pretty awesome, but me, not so much. Having confidence. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's the cross. But the beauty of reconciliation goes even farther. Not only is the relationship restored, John 1, 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not only does God say, yeah, yeah, we're good. God says, you're my child. He adopts us. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. God didn't just save us to make us okay and to wipe the slate clean and go for it. He saved us to say, you're now in my family, at my dinner table. You belong to me. You are my child. The family gathering is so beautiful because of the the love and the acceptance that is supposed to be there. Sin comes in and twists and warps that picture. And we feel it in our day-to-day lives. And we've got to get over this notion of we just need to accept who we are. Just, Just be at peace with yourself. That's what the world tries to say all the time. It doesn't work. It never has. We need to look to the cross of Jesus Christ where God is not just accepting us the way we are. He is reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ. The price has been paid. We are declared righteous and we are adopted into his family, wholly loved and wholly accepted. As we hold up this diamond of the gift of the cross of Jesus Christ, We look at the the marketplace and we say we've been redeemed from slavery. We look at the courtroom and say we've been justified by the punishment that Christ took in our place. We look at the family gathering and we say we've been reconciled, brought back into a right relationship with God. I want us to be in awe of this free gift of salvation. We need to be more amazed. We're sometimes too quick to run through the cross and just get to, now here's the three steps you need to take this week. Go back to the cross. Look at the gift. 
Throughout the rest of the series, we're going to look at living a cross-shaped life, how the cross changes our life, how it changes our church, how it changes our mission, and how it shapes our ultimate hope. But before we get there, this morning, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you've accepted that gift of salvation, go deeper into these truths. Hold up that diamond of your salvation and say, Father, teach me. Show me what this gift is. Be amazed at what Christ has done for you. Praise him for the gift of that salvation. Trust that gift. Quit trying to repeat on your own what Christ has already accomplished for you. Trust it, accept it, and live in that faith. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never received this gift, I want you to know that the freedom that you seek the guilt you so desperately want removed from your life, the sense of love and acceptance that you long for in the core of your being, it will only ever be found through the cross of Jesus Christ. You will spend the rest of your life chasing after one answer after another, and none of them will fulfill these deep needs in your heart. And the cross is offered to you as a gift. You just need to accept it. You can't earn it, and God doesn't ask you to. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Communion is this celebration and this reminder, I am part of God's family. He has said to me, come to the table. And all of this points back to the cross of Jesus Christ. We come to God's table because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And in a moment, we're going to take this and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say what I always say. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, please just let the elements pass you by. Please don't come forward and take this. This is for followers of Christ only. But here's the thing. I wanted to say this before I say that. If you're not a Christian right now, you've seen the gift of the cross of Jesus Christ. Right now, you've heard the truth, and you've heard that it's a gift. Right now, you can receive that gift. And you can participate in the beautiful, loving picture of communion where we come to the table together in the presence of God Almighty and say, we are redeemed, we are set free, we are justified. I am part of God's family. That's what I want for you. I don't want people to be kept away from communion. But I want it to be real and meaningful when you come. So I'm going to close in prayer. And if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, if you've never accepted that gift, do so now. All you have to do is say, God, I need that gift, and I believe Jesus has done everything necessary for me to receive it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, this gift of the cross of your Son, Jesus, changes everything. Forgive us for trying to be so clever to reinvent ways to circumvent and to go around how you have saved us to try to come up with our own ways that we might feel better about ourselves. I pray, Father, that we would just stop and look fully at the multifaceted beauty and glory that is the cross of Jesus Christ. That we would see the purchase of our salvation from slavery, the declaration of our justification from sin, and the acceptance into your family that has been gathered throughout all the ages. And all of this is because of what your son Jesus did on the cross 
to save us from our sins and offers that salvation to us as a free gift. So, Father, as we take communion now, may we be reminded of the beauty that is the salvation and the gift of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.